How's everybody doing on this early Sunday morning? I told Heather, that is the lowest energy I've ever seen the kids leave the auditorium ever. So they all looked half asleep. Um, I reconnected with a friend of mine from high school in the, in the last couple weeks, and he texted me this morning. And, well, let me, let me back up. He found out that I was at a church called a Bible church, and he currently lives in Kentucky. And so his comment, he started uh, commenting about us being snake handlers. And I said, no, we're not that kind of Bible church. But anyway, this morning, he said, uh, he texted me and said, well, how many people are going to sleep through your sermon? I said, none, because they'll be afraid I'm going to hand them a snake. But... Uh, <laughs> Anyway, uh, that, uh, that being said, it's uh, daylight saving time. I, I have thought about this often. I will vote either side of the aisle for anyone who votes or who gets an initiative together to get rid of all this stuff. So same time all year round. I don't care. So, but anyway, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. And you will notice that the songs today um, stayed in the realm of talking about me and my relationship to the Father. And that was by purpose because I'm very excited about the passage today because it's all about our identity in Christ and what leads us to that happens to be that they were suing one another in a church. And so in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, we're in the middle of some difficult material. In chapter 5, Paul dealt with some uh, sexual immorality and church discipline. In this chapter, he begins by detail, or dealing with the problem of Christians suing one another in civil court. And what we need to understand about Paul in these verses on lawsuits uh, he is not saying that matters of criminal law ought to be kept quiet and, and handled internally by the church. His, his message is that we shouldn't take criminal matters and, and stuff them down in the church and, and not do anything with them. That's not his message at all. He's not suggesting that embezzlement or abuse or anything of that nature ought to be kept out of the courts or out of the law. In fact, um, if you remember in some of his other writings, the Apostle Paul himself was ready to invoke his legal rights as a Roman citizen and appealed himself to the courts of justice for recourse and redress. The civil magistrate, he will tell us in Romans 13, is God's minister, his servant, whom God has ordained and appointed for our good. So Paul is not saying in this chapter on the lawsuits that we ought not to appeal to the law of the land when necessary. There are some circumstances in which believers are left without any kind of choice acting to defend themselves or others by the, using the law of the land when there's no other choice that remains. This is apparently what is not happening in the Corinthian church. It seems that in Corinth, church members were forgetting their obligations to other Christians to forgive one another, to love one another, and to practice patience with one another. And instead, they were using the court system to score points to make money and to gain competitive advantage in business and in society at the expense of brothers and sisters in Christ. And as you could imagine, this kind of thing going on was wreaking havoc in the fellowship of the Corinthian church. 
And so that's the first thing to keep in mind when we work through 1 Corinthians 6 and verses 1 through 11. I had him read verse 8, but we're going to go through 11. Paul is not despising the proper use of the civil law when necessary, but he is challenging the kind of misuse of it for selfish and malicious ends that were common in Corinth. I said last time that there, there's kind of an odd way that Paul is working through this chapter. He, he addresses incest, sexual immorality in chapter number five. And then in the end of chapter number six, he deals with prostitution. And sandwiched right between those two things is this little section on lawsuits. And I, I said last time that maybe what's going on is that the person who was living in incest had a lot of money. And we, so that was dealing with money. Prostitution's dealing with money, and lawsuits are dealing with money, and that could be a common thread. But there's another reason it seems that, he is, that, that he's going through this the way that he is. If you look at um, verse number five, it says it is actually, or chapter five, I'm sorry, verse number one, is actually reported there's sexual immorality. And um, verse, chapter number seven, he says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it would seem that he is going through this maybe in the order that they had asked him questions. And it, it comes in that as well. I don't know what the answer is, but um, the fact of the matter is that he, whether it's sexual immorality um, divisions in the church or lawsuits among believers or church discipline, he takes the gospel, and this is what's important, he takes the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified to the hearts and the lives of believers. He says, if you really get this, if, it, if this really begins to penetrate and rewire and reconfigure your thinking from the ground up, everything else will change Two, the, the, the real issue at the church in Corinth has to do, listen, this is, this is the important part, has to do with their failure to recognize and apply the gospel to their lives. And I dare say that's a problem with most believers today. Most believers today fail to apply the gospel to their lives in any meaningful fashion. And that's the reason why I decided to call the, the, the sermon Gospel Amnesia. I was reading a commentator this week, and he said that. He said the, 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 reader, the, the readers of his letter in Corinth had gospel amnesia. Now, we're familiar with amnesia, aren't we? Um, well, you better not be that familiar with it, but... There, there's a, there was a book, that I, a book series, actually, I read in the 1980s, and they were by a guy named Robert Ludlum. The first book I read was called The Born Identity. I bet some of you didn't even realize that was a book before it was a movie, did you? Okay. Um, and and the, the, in the book, there's this guy named Jason Bourne who is has a psychologically induced amnesia. Uh, it was caused by government treatment. If you saw the movie, you know a little bit about it. And he was trying to find out who he really was. And in the course of finding out who he was, he was doing what he used to do before he had his amnesia, right? Um, by the way, the, the book is way better than the movie. 
always the book is better than the movie. Always. So, um, and that's not just opinion. No, I'm just kidding. So I realize that's opinion, but I, I love to read and I, I get so immersed in a book compared to a movie. It's, it's far different. But anyway, um, we're familiar with amnesia. And so the, the title of the sermon is Gospel Amnesia. Um, and and that, that's what they were suffering from. They were suffering from gospel amnesia, the good news about Jesus. Their new identity in him has been overlooked and ignored and forgotten in situation after situation. And so if you'll look at chapter 6, look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you'll see that Paul is making that point with this repeated question. He says, do you not know? Verse number two, he says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Verse three, do you not know that we are to judge the angels? Verse number nine, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And so there are things that they ought to know. And Paul had taught them, and Cephas had taught them, and Apollos had been with them and taught them, and others had opened the scriptures and taught them. Paul had previously written to them. They had been well taught in the things of God, and they ought to know. But they seemed to have forgotten these things. And theirs was a case of gospel amnesia, and because of this, tragic consequences follow. Now, in particular, in this passage, they're beginning to sue one another with behavior more reminiscent of their old life than the new life that ought to be characterized them as Christians. And so Paul asks this, look at verse number one. He says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before an unrighteous uh, instead of the saints? Now that's who they are now. They are saints. They are holy ones. They are set apart by the grace and work of God in their lives unto the Lord Jesus Christ. They are designated His. They ought no longer to live as they once did according to the values of the world. According to the, instead, they should live according to the values of King Jesus to whom they belong, to whom you belong today if you are in Christ They are struggling with a problem that so many of us still struggle with. They're struggling with this. Now that they are Christians, they are struggling to throw off their old habits, their old patterns and values of their previous life. Listen for just a moment to the way one scholar describes how the law courts worked, and and, and this might help you understand what Paul's talking about in this chapter. This is what he says. He says, in deciding to sue, one first had to calculate the cost and chances of winning, not on the basis of the merits of the case, but on the defendant's social status and powerful connections. People in the ancient world, he says, contended for the honor in the law of courts. And one gained honor by beating down a rival. And so the pursuit of litigation often had little to do with the pursuit of justice. Does that help you understand what Paul's addressing here? Now that's the problem in Corinth. They weren't into justice. They were interested in personal advancement in society at the expense of others whom they threatened who, who's, who threatened their standing in some way. 
whether they were believers or not, made no difference for them. As a matter of fact, Paul calls them in, in chapter, or verse number 2 of chapter 6, he calls them trivial cases. And it reeks of pride, and it reeks of snobbery, and it reeks of selfishness and lovelessness. And they, they operated in the same old way that they did before they were Christians. They were suffering from gospel amnesia. They had forgotten that now that they are in Christ, now that Jesus has rescued them, they are new creatures who are to live by a new life in the context of God's fellowship community, the church of Jesus Christ. Now, as we get into this chapter now, I want you to notice what Paul does. This is very fascinating. This is why um, I want to talk about identity today and call this gospel amnesia. This is what he did. He, he lays out three ways that our true gospel identity should shape who we are. First, in verses 1 to 3, he speaks about our future, where we're going now that we are Christians. He's talking about our destiny, isn't he? Our future, our destiny. Secondly, in verses 4 to 8, he speaks about the present. And what he does is he calls us to face up to how we are now living um, in, in, in spite of the fact that we're, we're Christians. In other words, compare your life, how you're living now, to the fact that you call yourself a Christian. And then in verses 9 to 11, so he's calling them to become what they are. And then in verses 9 to 11, he speaks about the past. Who we became by the grace of God when he made us Christians. And if we can grasp these things, Paul is saying, we will begin to recover some sense of who we are as men and women in Christ, and that will change everything. So he first he looks at the future, then he looks at the present, and then he looks to the past. And he says, take these three things, and it will help you to understand how you're to live. I mean, the gospel is so applicable to the gritty things that happen in life. So let's look at the, the past, or our future, I'm sorry. Our future first. In verses 1 to 3, Paul points us to our destiny. And he reminds himself of our, our future. The Christian community ought to be able to mediate the disputes internally and bring about reconciliation between believing brothers and sisters without the need to go to the courts in civil matters. Civil matters I'm talking about here, not criminal, okay? The church, after all, is a society unlike any other. Endowed with the Spirit of God, sinners saved by grace, clean to Christ. That's who we are. And so he will ask in verse number five, look at verse number five, can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle disputes between brothers? The church ought to be able to do that. And so what he does is he points to the future. Look at verse number two. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So 
in, in the background of what he's saying here, there's almost certainly passages in Paul's mind like, like Matthew 19.28, the words of Jesus where he told his disciples that they would sit with him on thrones judging Israel in the new creation. That's what he told his disciples. In the Old Testament scriptures, in Daniel chapter number 7, um, Daniel the prophet saw one like the Son of Man being, being given dominion and authority and a what? A, a kingdom. Okay, And then in Daniel 7.27, we read the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. They will be given to the saints. We'll be given these kingdoms. And we will, listen, we will reign and judge right alongside Jesus Christ. That is our exalted and glorious future. And so why on earth would we spend so much time sweating trivial things like the things that happen here on earth? But the Corinthians, Paul says in contrast, are occupying their attention with trivial cases even though they're to judge the angels one day. Surely even here and now, on this side of eternity, he says, in matters pertaining to this life, the church with a destiny like this should be able to work things out amongst believers, shouldn't it? Shouldn't we be able to do that? Remember where you are going, he's saying to us. Remember the high dignity and the exalted role that you will one day fulfill in the courtroom of heaven itself. Think about that with me. Does that seem like pie in the sky? Or do you take that on as your present reality that one day you will reign with Christ and you will judge with Christ? That's the dignity to which everybody here is called. How ought you to conduct yourself in light of that future destiny? Let me ask you that question. How ought you to conduct yourself in light of that future destiny? You, who one day will judge the angels, are you tearing one another down here? You, who one day will sit with Christ in the final tribunal, do you use the world's tactics to advance your own status here, even at the expense of and the wounding of those who you will serve with as brothers and sisters on the final day? Remember your destiny and live in its light. Our future where we're going now that we are Christians, it's so important that we remember this. Everything down here that pertains to civil things and getting ahead in this life, can I tell you, they're, they're trivial. Trivial. Heather and I were having this discussion just the other day, and we were talking about when you compare this life to the length of eternity, 
I, I wish I could take it. I wish I could make, come over here with a whiteboard and make the, the most minuscule little scratch. A scratch so small that you can't even see on this whiteboard. And then draw out a line that goes way, way over here and keeps on going and keeps on going and keeps on going. Actually, two lines, one going up and one going down. And then come back here and remind everybody that this tiny little scratch that you cannot see is your whole life here on earth. And we have millions, actually we have billions of people who are pointing all of their focus in this little bitty little point. And it's nothing in light of eternity. And everything that you do in this little point that you cannot see from the back row back here, if I were to take a pen, I could write on this wall, couldn't I? <laughs> I can write on this wall. All right. There's a pen point right there. That felt good, by the way. <laughs> now you take it, and millions and billions of people are pouring everything into this little point right here. And they're living for all of that. And all of that, that little bitty point, determines your long future in eternity. But they're not living that way. They're living for the point. Christians are living for eternity. And Heather and I were talking, and here's these people. They're, they're spending all their time focused on this point. And what they don't know is if they die without Jesus Christ, it's that long eternity suffering in hell. Frightening, isn't it? Now you think for just a minute, I'm way off my sermon, by the way. But I, I need to say this. Now, you think for just a minute how many people who call themselves Christians are living for this little point and they act like eternity doesn't factor into anything that they're doing today. Notice I said call themselves Christians. Well, let's go on to number two. Paul says, not only remember your future, but he also says, um, face up to our present. Paul says to face up to our present. How we're living, very often despite the fact that we are Christians. Look at verses 4 to 8. Look at what he says. So if you have such cases, why do you lay before them those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is none among you wise enough to settle a dispute among the brothers, but brother goes to law against brothers, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Did you catch that? Why not rather suffer wrong? We're not talking about criminal wrong here. We're talking about being cheated or whatever else. Isn't that okay? Isn't that okay to get cheated here if that pleases Christ and you get rewarded for all of eternity for trusting Him to make things right? Isn't that okay? Yes or no? Yes. It's okay, isn't it? It's, 
Absolutely. Okay, let's, let's finish this up. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. I, I've met so many people who call themselves Christians, and when I talk about that, well, why don't you just, I'll, I'll say, why don't you just let it go? It's not that big of a deal. And they say, well, at what point do I become a naive fool? The answer is at no point, if you're trusting Jesus Christ to make all wrongs right, if you believe that God will do that, that you will be, be rewarded for all of eternity, then you're not naive and a fool because you're trusting the Christ that will make everything right and will reward you for year after year after millions of years and billions of years on into eternity. That's not being naive. Naivety, by naivete, would be to say, you know what, I'm going to get my pound of flesh in court against this person who's a Christian because that's the right thing to do. And they don't factor eternity in. Well, anyway, let me get back to what Paul's saying here. Their gospel amnesia means that their identity in Christ has ceased to function and operate in any meaningful way in their thinking and their living. The fact that they were brothers and sisters through faith in Jesus, that they were family, ought to have made all the difference. But instead, they were arguing their case before those who have no standing in the church, verse number four. And so Paul says, verse number five, they ought to be ashamed of themselves. Surely the church has the basic competence and the gifts it needs amongst its leaders to help settle petty disputes. Do we? Shouldn't we? Christ said he's given us that ability. Someone is wise enough, surely. The Corinthians, you will remember, were boasting in their superior wisdom, weren't they? That's what chapters 1 to 4 were about. If you're so wise, you Corinthians, well then, if you're so wise, isn't there someone in your group that can meditate or mediate, sorry, mediate between the agreed believers? But instead, they're going before unbelievers, the unrighteous for a decision. And he says in verse number seven, look at what he says. He says, that is already a defeat for you. It is soon as you take something like this, before a magistrate, you're defeated. It doesn't matter if you win or lose before that magistrate, you are defeated. Now, why is it a defeat for a Christian to act like this? It's a defeat because the gospel says that to belong to Jesus is to become a brother or sister to people with whom you might otherwise have nothing in common with. Right? Nothing in common with. But now, well, I'll keep moving. Um, you don't relate to them. You don't get them. And they don't get you. You don't understand their background. You don't understand their uh, ethnicity. You don't understand their pedigree. And it all may be entirely alien to you and well outside of your comfort zone. But now, all of this withstanding, now you become one with them in Christ. And so now you are family with somebody that you don't really understand. 
And so then the, the call for the believer is to love that person and fellowship with them through Jesus Christ and overlook the different um, parts of their background and, and ethnicity and goals and dreams and desires that are different from you and love them as a brother or sister. You are bound to them in sacred bonds of gospel love, and so now you must forgive. You must turn the other cheek. You must practice patience. You must leave your gift at the altar and be reconciled to your brother. And when you do that, and the world watches as relationships come under pressure, and there's every reason for them to fracture and fragment and turn sour and ugly when the church instead pursues one another in love and seeks reconciliation Paul said that is a victory that's gospel victory the world sees that you are Christ's disciples by your love for one another that's exciting it changes everything. It's so exciting to me to think about that. And so we remind ourselves of the past or of our future. We, we face the present and we remember our past. Now, if you look at verses 9 to 11, and he reminds us of our past, who we became when by God's grace he made us Christians. Now, Lord willing, we're going to come back to verses 9, and 11, 9 through 11 next week. Okay? But for right now... Um, we're not going to take a closer look at it too much. We're just going to say a little bit about it and move on. Paul reminds them of a truth, a basic truth that they seem to have forgotten. Verse number nine, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's a basic truth that he needed to remind them of. That is how Paul described the judges the pagan judges before whom they were bringing one another in their lawsuits. He called them the unrighteous. And here he says this, well now let me show you the destiny of the unrighteous. So get the picture. Earlier he calls the judges and magistrates the unrighteous. And now in this little section he said, I want to show you, you're taking your lawsuits before people, let me show you their destiny as being unrighteous. And he lays it out here in verses 9 to 11. And he characterizes them in verses 9 and 10 by their besetting sins. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral or idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Sinners are excluded from the kingdom of God. That's what he says. It's a sobering picture. And then he drops the bombshell. And such were some of you. But you are washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit of, by the Spirit of our God. The Corinthians, he's, he's literally saying, Corinthians, here's the real issue that you have lost sight of uh, entirely. Which, if you would only get straight in your thinking, would begin to change you. And the way that you live now would not be a defeat, but you would indeed begin to be at last in victory. And here's the real issue. You have forgotten that you are not now who you once were. See, that's the issue. Now that Jesus has erupted into your lives through the gospel, everything 
has changed. You are no longer defined by your old life of sin. And Paul has listed an array of sins that define people. And now he says, you have come to know Jesus Christ. These sins no longer define you. That's not who you are anymore. You've been washed and cleansed and sanctified and counted righteous in the sight of God in the heavenly tribunal, robed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's who you really are. And, you, and now that you're a believer, you need to start living like that. That's what he's saying. It's time to start living like who you really are. Time to start being who you really are. No wonder you struggle in your conflict with sin in your heart when you continue to identify yourself with who you used to be and not by who you are now in Jesus Christ. That's your true identity. You've come to Christ, and so the old has gone and the new has come. Now here's what I really... Let me say this a different way. In your struggle, and every one of us has a struggle to live in practical holiness, don't we? Okay? If you don't, you're dead. Bottom line. And you're not struggling then because you're hopefully in heaven where there's no struggle. But in our daily pursuit of personal holiness... Many of us, I believe, are tempted to think. Let me, have you ever been tempted to think this? What I really need is an extra dose of supernatural power. A little more juice to power the engine of my soul to help me be obedient. What I need is a little pick-me-up. Maybe pastor will give me that to me on Sunday morning. Sorry. <laughs> but that's not Paul's counsel at all, is it? Paul's counsel is not to look for something new, something extra. His counsel, rather, is to go back to what God has already done for you in Jesus Christ. To understand the gospel and your new identity in Him. To get that clear. And what he, what he is saying is take that truth and press it down into every pore and every crack and every crevice of your spiritual life and let that um, soak into your life. This is who you are in Jesus Christ. Let it soak all the way through and begin to live in its light. No longer a slave to sin. No longer mastered by the old life. A child of grace, adopted into the family, born by the Spirit of God, clean and righteousness, or clean and righteous, not with my own righteousness, as though these things that Paul lists never tempt me again, but rather... Um, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the righteousness that I will inherit in the kingdom. And not because you do not fail, but because you are counted righteous in God. These things are so important. Now listen, I'm just about done here. When you grasp that, when you grasp the wonder and awe and joy of it, it will begin to animate you. It will give strength to your hands. It will give you iron in your will. Resolve that you will begin to pursue obedience to listen, King Jesus. And you'll do it with a joyful heart. You won't just grit your teeth 
to try to make it through the temptation, you will joyfully be empowered. When you see, I am with Jesus Christ, I will one day rule and reign with him. And he counted me righteousness. And this temptation is not as um, exciting. And, and um, it's not as, I'm trying to think of the word I'm looking for. It doesn't look as good as the kingdom of Jesus Christ looks as my future destiny. And that is what we are called to do. Instead of pulling back from other believers, well, I'm not going to go around that person because I'm tempted to sin when I get around them because they make me so mad or they irritate me or whatever it is, okay? Instead of pulling back from people, you will pursue reconciliation. When everything inside you says, retreat, 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 go back, to the world's way, you will pursue that reconciliation. You won't stand behind your barricades. You won't throw grenades at one another and wound and destroy one another. No, when you understand who you really are in Christ, you will become a servant. And you will pursue reconciliation. That would not be defeat, would it? The the, the world looks on how um, and it looks on to see how those Christians behave under p- pressure. Not that... Well, anyway. What the world sees, I want you to get this, is yes, we may have some clunky relationships with one another. But in those clunky relationships, in those awkward relationships... We don't back off and withdraw, but we pursue one another in love because we're family. And we are one in Christ. That would be victory indeed. That would be a demonstration of the power of the Gospel. I meet so many people who have come from churches where they've been hurt. And, and uh, my, my first real experience was in Pound when I was a pastor. And we'd have people that would go five, six years uh, withdrawn from the church because the previous church hurt them. That's, that's not biblical. And I'm not, I'm not speaking to anybody in particular. I, I don't know you. I know a group of people that are here, and I know the universal experience of people who have been hurt at other churches. The universal experience is, I've been hurt, I don't want to get hurt again, so I'm going to withdraw. Am I right? Okay. That's not what Paul calls us to do. Paul, the gospel of Jesus Christ, calls for us to reach out to reconcile, to be willing to put yourself in a place where you can get hurt and do it because Jesus Christ and his gospel are worth the glory that he will get when we do that. Make sense? Again, I'm not preaching to anybody specific. That's been my universal experience as a pastor to see that happen year after year. And that's what Paul's calling us to do. What are we to do? We are to remember our future. Where we are going now that we are Christians. 
One day we will judge the world, judge the angels. We're to be the Supreme Court judges one day. Here we sit in training. We ought to live knowing that one day um, our destiny will be that we're judges. We're to face up to the present, to see those areas in which today we live at such a a low ebb and, and flow so far below our new identity and standing, so far below the, the life to which we are called, and we are called to repent. And we are to remember our past, what God has done in Christ at the cross, in our hearts by Christ through the gospel, making us new. And as we grasp it, and we begin to live in its light, to be who we really are, listen, may the Lord give us the grace to do precisely that. Let us pray together. Lord, this is so exciting. It is so exciting to see who we are in Christ, that the gospel of Jesus Christ can be applied to all the nitty-gritty all the gritty aspects, the, the, the dirty aspects of life, and can change us, can transform our churches. And Lord, as exciting as it is, I ask that you will place in our hearts that desire to obey, to honor, and to glorify you. In Christ's name, amen.